Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall Podcast. My name is Christian Mesa. My name is Aaron Bennett. And we have a really exciting guest for you guys this weekend. This is someone we have been looking to have on the podcast for a long time, and I'm really excited to have him. His name is Governor Martin O'Malley. If anyone knows me, you know I'm so excited to have Governor Martin O'Malley on this podcast. It's something I've been dreaming of ever since I was a little boy. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, not something I've been dreaming of since I was a little boy, but <laughs> nevertheless, really exciting to have him. Great. First, before we uh, dive into the subject matter that we want to talk about today, we just want to give a quick plug for our social media. Follow us at Fly on the Wall Pod, both on Twitter, Instagram, uh, and then you can also find us on Facebook, Fly on the Wall, a GU Politics podcast. We want to get to know our, our listeners. We want to get to know our audience. So definitely uh, give us a follow. Give us a shout. Yeah, it's a good way to figure out what we're up to, what we're doing. Um, we've been teasing the governor having on there. Um, for the last couple of days on our social media, so definitely check it out. Great, and before we get started with uh, talking to the governor, we want to give you a quick recap of what's been going on in Washington and in politics uh, at large over the last week or so. The number one story of the week is the passage of the American Health Care Act. Is that, yeah. is that what the AHCA? Uh, I find it so hard to believe that it's the same bill that we saw a month ago and that we were talking about with Jen Psaki like two months ago. Yeah, definitely check out that episode if you guys are really curious to find out what's going on with healthcare in America. But I guess finally it passed, right? Republicans were able to get uh, the threshold needed. I think there were only 19 dissenting no votes within the Republican Party. Uh, and they got it through the House and it's on to the Senate. So I guess a lot of questions still remain. Uh, the one that's sort of at the top of our minds is, how does this affect the larger political landscape come 2018? We know Democrats are already jumping on the opportunity to attack health, uh, Republicans for taking away health care or uh, reducing uh, some of the benefits that the Affordable Care Act offered. Uh, we know that they're running attack ads in California, actually, Christian's mm -hmm. home state. Uh, a six-figure ad buy for primetime radio, uh, just attacking five vulnerable Republicans in the district, including... Uh, Daryl Issa, <laughs> someone who uh, it's safe to say is pretty vulnerable. Yeah, uh, he guys, if you guys don't know, California 49 is like an incredibly even district in terms of uh, partisanship. And uh, Daryl Issa has been in that seat for so long now. And he very narrowly won his election um, in 2016. Mm -hmm. Like it was a couple thousand, couple thousand votes, if anything. It was very close. Um, and he's. The guy who ran against him, um, Doug Applegate, is actually already said that he is going to rerun again in 2018. So it's going to be a really interesting race to see what's going on there. And Democrats think that this vote uh, will make it easier for them to attack Republicans come 2018. However, Republicans think it's actually uh, sort of to their benefit that they're able to push this piece of legislation through. As they correctly note, uh, midterm elections are generally elections that uh, are best played to the base right? Voter, voting turnout's low. The ones who come out are usually the party loyalists, the people who wanted to see Obamacare repealed and replaced. So if Republicans are able to get behind a unified message here, this could actually play to their benefit. I think it's interesting to see how it'll shake out. Yeah, of course, the counter argument to that as well, though, is that the midterm elections are also elections in which uh, generally it's a backlash against mm. whoever's in power, the party in power or the president of the United States. Um, and, you know, we saw that with Obama in 2010. Um, and I think it's something we could possibly see in 2018 as well. Again, it's it's all incredibly far off. I mean, yeah, uh, like it's been a hundred days of Trump's presidency, and we're talking about two years from now. So I feel like it's a little wild to be having uh, speculation, but it definitely is an interesting thing to think about going forward. Certainly. If I could just have 20 more seconds just to rant. This is a rant that I've been seeing on Twitter, and it's something that like I've always personally 
thought about and, and it's this idea of politics as this binary win loss mm. and and favreau or it's a favreau fight for someone someone on twitter said something about this uh with a screen cap of a cnn headline that said finally a trump victory or something like that and i think it's just a sad state of affairs when uh we're looking at pieces of legislation that can have such a significant impact on people's lives as is it a win for the president is it a loss for the president yeah I, there's so much more to this and i i think that some of the coverage we've seen uh just in the early first hundred days have been so focused on Trump getting a win or Trump's consistent losses uh, that we sort of lose sight of the grander politics, which is used to actually help people and, and move the country forward and create policies for the United States of America. So I think it's kind of a sad state of affairs. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, I totally agree with that. I mean, this isn't like a war between two groups of people. Like yeah. this, is a, this is a conversation about who is governing and who is going to be leading America. Um, and I think that people often forget that. So our other one minute spotlight is going to be on um, something that has developed in the last couple of days, and you guys will probably have more insight than we do when recording this, is um, the French election hack. Um, in very much the same fashion that we saw the Hillary Clinton election hack in 2016, um, Emmanuel Macron is, I think, how you pronounce his name. No idea. Um, I don't know. I don't speak French. I don't know exactly the way you're supposed to If you're to a pronounce. listener who speaks French, like hit us up with that yeah, pronunciation. Yeah, right. Um, so Macron has had his emails hacked um, in very much the same way as the Hillary Clinton election. And um, all of those emails were dumped onto the internet about, well, as of yesterday, that was Friday. Um, but um, these elections are going on on Sunday and it could mean a big deal. It could mean nothing. Um, I think the more interesting point here is what is going on in the world? Because um, <laughs> this is the second election hack against, you know, essentially globalism uh, or in globalization um, and you know there's a conversation going on in the world on who is behind this and it would be hard-pressed and like the reporting that I've seen so far is that these two are run by the same group of people um, and you would be hard-pressed to point that it is not at least Russian backed if not fully run by Russian intelligence and I think it's a really interesting thing that we're going to be seeing affecting world politics in the next couple of years. Yeah, I don't think anyone has specifically confirmed that the Russians are behind this. I know there's a lot more evidence to suggest that they are behind the Podesta hack mm -hmm. and the DNC hack. But I, I, if you start connecting the pieces, I mean, the Russians have been very vocal in their support of Le Pen as a candidate for president, as they were with uh, Donald Trump for president. And you know, the suspicious timing of this hack, that the, again, they were similarly conducted as the DNC hack. Uh, it's hard not to, to, to point the finger, uh, but that being said, I don't think any reputable news outlet has, has officially confirmed that yet, so I wouldn't want to jump the gun. Yeah, that's fair. Um, so definitely something we're going to be looking towards in the next couple of weeks. Moving forward, a, a spotlight I want to shine, not necessarily on next week, but on the next few months, and this is going to make every millennial happy, at least <laughs> it makes me happy, Facebook is actually starting to dive into the TV production business. An article from Business Insider actually suggests that Facebook will be ready to launch TV shows as soon as uh, June, I think. They're going to start with some big picture, big budget uh, attacks on the TV landscape, you know, by, by putting out their own original content. So. I'm excited. I know uh, Netflix, Amazon Prime have been able to put out fantastic uh, original series. So we'll see what Facebook can do. Sure. Um, I think I'm <laughs> less excited than you are about Facebook TV. Why? Um, Why? I... It's more content. It's more procrastination. I guess. I don't know. Like, I don't... <laughs> sure, whatever, Mark Zuckerberg. Continue your, like, slow and immediate takeover of the world. <laughs> um, 
Uh, okay, so moving on to our tweet of the week um, is probably one of the funnier tweets I've seen in the last couple of weeks. Um, it comes from, well, technically the tweet comes from our guest this week, but the first tweet is from Matthew Iglesias, who wrote, everyone is sick of refighting the primary, but the truth must be told. And it's a photo of him um, wearing a shirt that said O'Malley would have won. I could not agree more <laughs> um, with which, you, Matthew Iglesias. And uh, Governor O'Malley tweeted back at him and said, if I ever earn any money, I will write you into my will. I love it. Um, and that's a good segue into our guest this week, which is Governor Martin O'Malley. Aaron, since he's your favorite uh, person, why don't you talk a little bit about who he is? Uh, so Governor O'Malley, so when he came to Georgetown as a f uh, fellow in the fall, uh, I was over the moon. This guy is someone that's been on my radar for years. He started off as the mayor of Baltimore back in uh, the late 90s, I believe, uh, and ascended to the uh, governor's mansion in Maryland, uh, and just has sort of taken off as a national political figure. He chaired the uh, Democratic Governors Association, the DGA, uh, which is a collection of Democratic governors across the United States. Uh, and most recently, he was a candidate for President of the United States, right alongside Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. I know he didn't get quite as much as excitement and support, uh, which I think is a, a or national... Or debate time. Or debate time, <laughs> which I think is a national tragedy. But uh, this guy was right up there. He was on the CNN debates. He, he was talking with them, sparring with them. And then eventually, after dropping out after Iowa, endorsed Hillary Clinton uh, and, and campaigned and stumped for her for the general election. And is a rather outspoken uh, advocate for his vision of the Democratic Party, which is essentially what we like to talk with you about today. Yeah, so with that, let's have the governor on. Hello, everyone, and welcome. We're here with Governor Martin O'Malley. Good to be governor, back. <laughs> yeah, former Governor of Maryland and former Geopolitics Fellow. So he, uh, he's pretty familiar with this place. So welcome back to Georgetown. Thank you. It's good to be back. I like that you've been at the office. <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful. Yeah, we're back in his old uh, his old digs here. Uh, we just want to bring him onto the podcast to talk about something that we think is really important. And uh, that's sort of the polarization we're seeing in Congress, right? And it's something we talked about in our discussion groups with you is, you know, are we becoming more par uh, polarized as a country or less? And we've sort of seen that in Congress over the last few weeks, you know, it doesn't <laughs> or seem... Today. Or today. yeah. <laughs> and we're seeing even inside the Republican Party, you know, they're so polarized in their views. You have the Freedom Caucus, you have the, the moderates, yet they can't even get on the same page. So I guess that's a natural uh, first question and a place for us to start is in this sort of political environment, what made you want to run uh, and be a part of this, uh, this whole system, this whole landscape? Well, I, I ran for president because I believed that our country was, was headed towards uh, some really uh, divided times. I felt, that, um, I felt that our country was lacking the, the vision necessary to forge a precious consensus and, and to actually get things done. And it was my sense that the other candidates offering themselves at this time could not, uh, did not have the ability to pull that off or at least not with the greatest chance of pulling that off, as I did. And I know that I, I know that may sound like hubris. That's not to say that I thought I had a great chance of winning. I mean, I knew it was like scaling a cliff. There was, uh, it's hard to, hard to point to any couple probably since the Roosevelt's that had the sort of cachet of relationships and and respect and power that the Clintons did heading into uh, this primary, and yet my my sense was that the country was the country wanted to change, 
And, um, and I think the country still wants a change. Unfortunately, what animated this last election was a lot of fear and loathing and anger. But there will come a time when, as a nation, we, uh, we ask deeper questions about what we're about together as a people and how we're going to get things done for the sake of our kids, all of our kids. So you didn't get your start in public service uh, running for president in 2016. Um, you started it out in local politics and you, uh, you became the governor of Maryland. So talk to us about the importance of uh, local politics and uh, governor's mansions and state houses in building a party, building the Democratic Party. Yeah, let's talk about party. Uh, we, cool have, <laughs> we have not lost, uh, I think parties are important. And I think that this eagle flies best when both its left wing and its right wing are both flapping. In other words, I think that we could use as a nation a stronger Republican Party, and we could use, for the <laughs> sake of our nation, a stronger Democratic Party. Um, the Michael Steele, who was here, Michael Steele, the the political uh, consultant right. advisor. We just uh, had him on the podcast a couple weeks okay. ago. Yeah. Uh, of of the party of Lincoln. Uh, <laughs> uh, he is he was one who believes that the that Donald Trump is best understood as an independent candidate who took over a major party's nomination. And I, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. And, and let's hope one day the party of Lincoln will make a comeback. For my own sake and my own party, uh, we haven't lost as many governor's races, uh, state legislatures, um, as we have over these last eight years. And governors and state legislatures are really, really important because without some, some balance in our nation, uh, the partisan redistricting uh, method that most states in the United States have means that uh, the, the, the House of Representatives is no longer representative. Mm -hmm. uh, in other words, you have big states where a majority of voters may vote for Democratic Congress uh, candidates, and yet they return a congressional delegation that's overwhelmingly Republican. Well, that doesn't happen by itself. It happens because of the drawing of, of districts. So um, as a party, the, the hopeful news that I see right now out uh, across the nation is that there is a wellspring of new activism. You might call it reactivism. <laughs> uh, the numbers of people that turned out, men and women, for the Women's March immediately following the President Trump's inaugural, the numbers of people that showed up with all of about eight hours notice at airports, including Baltimore, Washington International, Thurgood Marshall Airport. Uh, I said to our party chair who was there in the crowd as I was in the crowd, I said, Yvette, if we had eight years, and we did, uh, <laughs> to, to organize, we couldn't have gotten a crowd this big to show up. Right. So there is, our challenge as a party is that uh, is converting that uh, that uh, yearning to be heard, to do something, and to converting that into real candidacies that actually go out there, not only run, but run and win, and, and make a difference. And I think what you're going to see is the Democratic Party coming back from uh, this loss in a much more networked, distributed, and localized way than we ever have before. And my mantra is I travel around the country, especially in open state legislative races is this, that the only way we're going to govern the United States again is if we first govern our states again. Right. And I think that is a great segue into what we'd like to talk about, uh, which is specifically 
how the localized uh, how localized government affects right broader national politics. Like we were talking about, uh, you know, if you control the state house, you control the governor's mansion. You get to decide how the districts are drawn. And coming up on a twenty twenty uh, census, we're I, I think a lot of the power is going to be in the parties, uh, the, the party that controls some of these states. So, talk to us a little bit about um, you know, do you, do you see that as a fair analysis? You know, sort of the root of this. Uh, partisanship in Congress coming from you know an unbalance or imbalance in uh, control of state houses. Yeah, the I think it's a fair analysis, but I think it goes much uh, uh, broader and deeper than merely the congressional redistricting. Uh, a lot of us who are progressives uh, tend to want to go to the big fix, the national fix, right. at the national level, <laughs> whatever the problem might be, whether it's unemployment or poverty or or climate change, or the health of our people, or the health of our air and our water. But local governments and our states, remember our country is called the United States of America for a reason. Our states uh, are really the drivers. Um, let me just uh, tick off a few issues. Uh, of course, one of the issues that's become very salient now is um, public safety and the way that law enforcement has been intertwined with racial injustice since the beginnings of our nation. Well, the untangling of that isn't going to come from some edict or from some law or even from a United States Attorney General. Right. Um, it's going to come from the men and women who are leading our cities and our metro areas, appointing the police commissioners, and actually taking the, the better actions not only to improve policing, but to improve how we police the police, how we supervise the police, how we train the police, and when necessary, how we discipline and, and prosecute the police. Um, on the issue of climate change, a lot of people pretty down in the mouth and bemoaning the fact that we've lost uh, American political leadership in the White House on climate change. Well, that's true, but that doesn't mean we've lost the leadership of Americans or of the states within the United States, and it's actually the states that control the utilities and regulate the utilities and can determine how fast we move and migrate from fossil fuels to renewable energy. And that's even before you get into all of the other things that can reduce uh, the amount of carbon we pump into the atmosphere in terms of best agricultural practices, green building codes, uh, the decoupling of the consumption motive from, from the profit motive for utilities. So. And, and finally, on uh, the issue of, you know, on environmental issues like restoring our waters, uh, not only our drinking waters like in Flint, Michigan, but also the waters of the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, last year, we made those waters healthier than they've been since 1985, measured on six scientific criteria, including the bay grasses, uh, uh, those subaquatic uh, grasses that contribute to our health. A recent article came out last week in the Sun, Baltimore Sun, saying that the acreage that's now covered in those restorative uh, bay grasses is larger than at any time that we've ever tracked it. Well, those things didn't happen necessarily because of the federal in investment, though that federal investment was nice and has now been zeroed out by Donald Trump. But the real enchilada, you know, the greatest amount of work was actually done by the six states in the Bay Watershed. The upgrades of the wastewater treatment plants, the cover crops, the acreage that were planted in stream buffers and, and forest cover. I mean, these are the things that have restored the waters of the Chesapeake Bay. And there's nothing Donald Trump can do to stop us from continuing right. those more life-giving actions.
Do you, um, so it seems that you think that uh, a lot of the democratic progressive agenda can be solved at the local level, um, but do you worry that Democrats may not be able to sustain this, you know, this drive that this level of passion that they have currently um, in the wake of the backlash to the Trump agenda? Or do you think that uh, this is something that we can see going on for the next couple of years? Do I worry? The, uh, I don't believe, I don't believe that there's, uh, well, let me say it positively. <laughs> uh, I believe that the instinct of Americans is to take actions that are more conducive to life and not less, to take actions that strengthen our common good, uh, not actions that diminish it to act in ways that are in accordance with the belief that we share in the dignity of every person and not to do violation to to an individual person's dignity. So while there are many, uh, many things that the Trump administration is capable of doing uh, with the powers that they've been given for a short time by their electoral college victory, things like, you know, swelling the populations of our for-profit immigrant internment camps in this country, the immigrant roundups that have begun, um, and other deplorable things. <laughs> there are many things that the states can check, that the cities can stop. And then you saw when they tried to deputize local police forces and local jails and turn them into part of the, the new weird national immigrant roundup police force, you mm. saw that Cities push back, states push back. The Tenth Amendment reserves to states those certain functions that no mayor constitutionally can turn over to a, a federal uh, um, government, uh, even if they wanted to. So, I, so I have I have great faith, especially um, where our nation's headed, because of the attitudes of our young people, among whom you will not find many that subscribe to this immigrant roundup and, or this scapegoating of all of our Muslim neighbors and wanting to give them ID cards or uh, you won't find many young people that deny climate change is real or think their nation shouldn't do something about it and you won't find many young people in America that want to deny rights to gay couples or their, or their children. So that tells me where we're going. <laughs> Unfortunately, we've taken a, a rather miserable uh, detour here for a time hopefully a short one hopefully and, it, and he shows every promise doesn't he <laughs> of being a very short presidency indeed maybe shorter than anybody in, anticipates and look guys the bottom line is darkness makes a great canvas and really the character the metal of our nation has been defined more so in our in our times of darkness and challenge than in our times of, of coasting and prosperity right and Governor, one of the things I most admire about you is your ability to channel uh, sort of your roots, right, in Catholic social teaching, how you've grown up with this faith and into your language and into the vision you paint for our party and for the country. And last week on our episode, we talked with E.J. Dion about how religion and politics are sort of intertwined. And I think now we have the perfect opportunity to see, you know, someone who really embodies that that connection, that, that intersection. So could you talk to us a little bit about you know, how, how your faith, how uh, the way you've grown up seeing the world really affects the way you choose your service and the, the way you couch uh, the arguments you make for politics. Sure. Um, and, I, and I love E.J. Dion, by the way. He's a great guy. Yeah. What, he's he's our professor. <laughs> he's yeah. our professor as well, yeah. yeah. 
He's a professor too. Yeah, we were taking his class. Oh, we're, we're, took his class. We yeah. turned in our final paper yesterday. Yeah, I love EJ Dion. Although it's an unrequited love. But maybe <laughs> I wouldn't say that. Maybe he'll find a way to toss me a bouquet. <laughs> I like especially what he writes on when he writes about the, uh, you know, the the alchemy, if you will, of, of faith and service and and public service. For me, I grew up in a house where I was taught that public service was a noble calling and vocation and that the only thing wrong with politics was not enough good people tried or participated. And so I was raised in a house where we were expected to always go to mass and always vote. And, and what's more, to, you know, to, to make real in your own life's actions the corporal works of mercy as well as the spiritual works of mercy and to make good in the political life of your nation on actions that actually strengthen the common good that we share. So. Sometimes I've asked, how do you separate the two, or rather, how do you, uh, uh, how do you, how do you keep the two separate? And I said, well, why do you want to keep the two separate? Right. I understand that we are a pluralistic society, and we have a very healthy uh, uh, separation of church and state. But we don't have a, we don't ask, um, we don't ask of our, our people or our, or our servants of our, our people to to abandon their faith or their core beliefs. And I think I've enjoyed, I was here at Georgetown in the fall at the Institute of Politics, and recently I was at Boston College. And I've enjoyed being on Catholic campuses. I also will be back at University of Maryland. I was at University of Maryland uh, the prior fall semester as well. But there's a certain freedom uh, that I'm encouraged to exercise Mm -hmm. on Catholic campuses to talk about what our own faith uh, can can offer uh, to our country right now, to people of all faiths, or indeed even people who profess to have no faith. Uh, and, and those pillars are our belief in the dignity of every person, which you hear ringing through our most fundamental you know, founding documents, that all are created equal, uh, that uh, inalienable rights... Um, and also the common good we share that is so that is spoken to so eloquently and, and directly in the preamble of our United States Constitution that those words we the people uh, and 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 finally there's an emerging consciousness right now in our country in our world actually uh, of a third ethic you might say an appreciation that it's not only about the actions we take in alignment with um, you know uh, a code of conduct uh, among us and between us, and indeed even in relationship to the creator of creation, but also to creation overall, mm. that our well-being depends on the well-being of the other living systems of this earth. And that's a new consciousness for us, the one species that has the ability to manipulate our natural environment as we have. And I do believe that our Catholic faith teaches us something about that as well. In fact, all faiths teach that the despoilation or, or depletion of the natural environment is a sin and is a, uh, a crime, if you will, against future generations. Indeed, the, the, the Genesis story, uh, Noah and the Ark, so many, so many things and, and an emerging body of thought uh, that's called uh, environmental Christology, the notion that the that the other living systems of this earth are also a manifestation of the body of Christ among us and with us. Mm. 
uh, all of those I think are powerful notions uh, and, and needed at these times and, and hopefully you guys will bring them to the fore. I think religion and politics is so interesting because um, a lot of what you have said could also be said on the right as well. A lot of these values of you know um, loving thy neighbor as yourself. So why do you think we get such differences in America um, based off of like you know how we should take religious freedom and how we should apply public service in uh, the world? Why mm. do you think there's such a difference on the two sides? Uh, there's a uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes, let me take a deep breath here. <laughs> yeah, take your time. Sometimes religious belief systems can default into uh, fundamentalism and become, uh, can turn institutions into tools of exclusion um, rather than rather than structures for inclusion uh, stated more directly uh, in it is uh, in times of fear and there's a lot of fear in our country right now uh, for reasons we you know could try to break down and, and itemize, but it's a fear that the pace of change is happening faster than we, the people, are capable of managing it and harnessing it for the good of all of us. There's a fear that my paycheck is declining, my prospects are declining, and my children will enjoy lesser lives less opportunity, less health, less security, less prosperity. And in times of fear, the, uh, uh, you know, the, the, in times of fear, that that sort of fundamentalist uh, scapegoating of others that are not like us, that are stealing our greatness, it's those people over there, it's that group there. They're undermining our security, they're taking your prosperity. All of those immigrants that are swarming over the border, when the reality is that net immigration from Mexico last year was zero. But yet, because people fear that the overall size of the pie is shrinking, their peace will shrink unless others are excluded. Religion sometimes can become an excuse for the exclusion of others. Uh, the reason I think why Jesus made such a, you know, created such a popular religion was he invited everybody, <laughs> you know. I think that's a very powerful message and, and something that is easy to lose track of, especially in the, the bitterness that is Washington, D.C., uh, as we've been uh, seeing over the last couple of weeks and uh, last year or so, uh, just how divided we've become. We'll be right back with Governor Martin O'Malley. But first, a political fun fact from your favorite host. Yeah, that's me, just if anyone's wondering, not Aaron. Uh, so our political fun fact of this week um, is something that came to my attention um, from one of our favorite guests of something we should do. Uh, so this week, 
Our political fun fact is that back in January of 1992, when George H.W. Bush was president, um, he was fielding a visit from the um, from the Japanese prime minister. And basically what happened is he ended up having flu-like symptoms symptoms and ended up throwing up oh. in the on, in the prime minister's lap. Oh, man. <laughs> and um, apparently um, out of this, in like Japanese pop culture, a word came out of it called uh, Bushu Suru, uh, which literally means to do the bush thing. And it was like a slang word for vomiting for a while. Oh, man. And I just think that is like one of the funniest political stories to have come out of the last, you know, 50 years. So that's our fun fact. Welcome back, Governor Martin O'Malley. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, so just to make things a little more optimistic, let's say, hypothetically, you were the autocrat of the Democratic Party, right? You could unilaterally make any change and, and move the party in a single direction, right? What, congratulations. Congratulations, <laughs> Mr. Autocratic Chairman. Uh, what's, what's step one? How do, how, do we, uh, how do we win in 2017, 2018, 2020? What's, what's your first move? Where do we invest? Yeah, look, the, I believe that uh, we, need to, we need to very directly address that economic anxiety, the fear uh, of decline, and that we're not capable of keeping up with the, the pace of change. And I found that one of the one of the uh, messages that was most enthusiastically received whenever I jumped up on a chair in Iowa or New Hampshire or South Carolina, Nevada, was when I said, "Our economy is not money; it is people. It is all of our people." You know, social justice has many faces, but its primary face, where it meets most families, is around their kitchen table, mm. and. We must be that party that's about strengthening and growing and increasingly and increasingly more upwardly mobile and more diverse and more inclusive middle class. That really is line one for the Democratic Party, that everyone who works hard should be able to get ahead. Now, there are actions that we have to take in order to reconnect productivity to wages. There's actions we need to take to upskill our people and invest and rebuild our infrastructure. But the primary mission is that our economy is not money, it's people. That's our primary belief and our primary mission is to strengthen and grow our middle class, to make it possible for more and more people to get ahead when they work hard for every individual and for every family. And from that flows everything else. Um, we will have an opportunity now uh, given the actions that Donald Trump will take, I know it seems like a hundred days, or for some of us a hundred years, but, <laughs> but the, I mean, I know it seems like a long hundred days, but it's only been a hundred days. The actions this president and this administration is taking will not expand economic justice or social justice in any of its faces. And over time, people will see that wealth will become ever more concentrated now that he's put Goldman Sachs in charge of regulating Wall Street. Mm -hmm. People will see that over time their wages are not going to go up. In fact, they will, they will uh, continue to, to stagnate or, or decline. We will see that um, other, other things will, will happen uh, to our infrastructure, our roads, our bridges. Uh, you know, and, and over time we will see that 
This president has not made our country stronger. He's not restored our greatness. He's made us weaker, and he's made us more vulnerable. And in fact, most Americans are already kind of figuring that out, even if they can't bring themselves to admit that they've that the disruptive change they intended was a bit too disruptive. It's one thing to disrupt, uh, to disrupt. It's another to disrupt. And many of the leading members of this administration have been pretty uh, brutally honest in <laughs> their about their goal and their motive, which is to dismantle what they call the administrative state, uh, what we call our national government. Right, and I guess a little more concretely, uh, so where do, where do Democrats go? You know, we have this message now that you just articulated, and I think it's great. Where where do the resources go? Is it is it more than just two hundred k in this Montana at large uh, congressional race? Is it is it local parties? Are we looking at individual? Are we trying to build up our cities? Like how how do we engage more Democrats? How do we how do we build that party? Like you said, from the ground up. Yeah, there's uh, I think. I think it's really the state parties that have to step up and play a greater role. And the DNC would 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 help uh, our, accelerate our party's comeback greatly if they would uh, allow the state parties to keep money and to raise money for the uh, to, for the state parties. Our our national people who uh, I've talked to many of them on the phone. People who are our party's biggest and most generous contributors are also people who uh, traditionally do not give to state party races or to state parties or to governor's races. And why is that? I don't know. I think it's because of our proclivity, our our tendency as progressives to want to go for the big fix. Right. Go big, big, go home. (laughs) Let's go for something that really fixes this problem, whether it's schools or crime or environment or climate. And to do that, we need the presidency. And... Sadly, it means that a lot of well, uh, uh, you know, uh, very talented, successful, and wealthy people in our own party kind of pride themselves on not taking calls from governor candidates. Uh, I had a dear friend who once said to me, well, Martin, I don't do governor's races. (laughs) And I said, well, uh, I'm not asking you to do the race. I'm doing the race. I'm (laughs) I'm asking you to contribute to my race. Uh, but they, what the national party needs to do is to tell our national donors that, look, we are all about building up our state capacities and our cities. We have some great leaders at the city level. And um, the mix of, 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 of qualities and, and, and qualifications and, and backgrounds are very diverse, and the state parties are best able to manage those sorts of things locally. So we really need to not only say we're committed to a 50-state strategy, but encourage our national contributors to build up state party uh, capacity. If you look at the national map adjusted for where people live rather than the geographic area, you see instead of a giant red continent, you see a a big continent dominated by blue bubbles, the sort of metropolitan areas where, where our nominee, Secretary Clinton, one by pretty overwhelming margins. Uh, and those, uh, this urbanization trend is going to continue. We need to build on that, but we also need to address through our state parties the, the, the despair that's really out there across a lot of areas of America. Um, uh, 
uh, in, in rural America. I mean, what a sad irony that after the longest string of monthly consecutive job growth in our nation's recorded history, that the number of white male suicides has never been higher. Why is that? Uh, in every soul, there's a desire to be recognized. And there's a lot of people in our country, not just white, the white men and th that are committing suicide, but there are also a lot of young black men in our cities who also don't feel recognized, who feel that they are worth less. And uh, we need to address that as a people. Um, and I believe that the, for our party, the, the 50 state strategy is the way to go, Aaron. Uh, and and our, our, our wealthiest contributors need to realize that as well. I think that all makes a lot of sense. And I think one final question before we move into our, our closing, uh, what we call lightning round. Uh, lightning round. We love the lightning round. But before we get there, one more thing. So this is something that we've all been waiting on bated breath. Uh, at least I have. Uh, and the question is, it's a two-parter. One, what's next for you, Governor O'Malley? And two, uh, as you move forward with whatever you decide to move forward with, how will you take your recent experiences since leaving the governor's mansion? Uh, your work in politics, both at the local level, running for uh, president, how you take what you've learned and apply it as you move forward. The like, hey, thank you for asking. I once heard <laughs> Tom Harkin talk to a you know former United States Senator from Iowa talk to a big group of people, and he began his remarks by saying, "Since I'm now out of politics, I'm sure that a few of you have been wondering what I've been doing." <laughs> and then he said, "I'm sure the vast majority of you haven't thought about it and given it a second chance, a second thought." Well, we here at Fly in the Wall, we here at Fly in the Wall care. Georgetown cares about you. I've been, I've been intentionally choosing to spend time on uh, with the, the future of America, and that is young people and here at Georgetown, also at Boston College and, and College Park. And part of that is, is my, own need to, uh, my own need to integrate my past experience and make sense of it and, and understand. Um, and, that's, and that's what I've been able to do. I've been writing pretty regularly from Boston. I did a series called uh, Letters from Boston. A well-intentioned friend of mine said, "Well, those letters were kind of self. Those le those things were seemed a little self-indulgent." <laughs> I said, "No, self-indulgent is when you eat a lot of chocolate, smoke cigars, <laughs> drink scotch, cash out, and we'll chill out on a beach. We'll That's self-indulgent. Yeah. I call it reflective. There you go. And it's important to be reflective. Uh, with all of the the wash of information we have in our fast-paced society, I mean." The, the truth is there wouldn't be an American Revolution without the solitude of Adams and the solitude of Jefferson and, and Thomas Paine. And it is important uh, uh, to take stock. So I'm, I'm continuing to teach a little bit, and I'm traveling around the country helping the local Democratic parties and the state Democratic parties wherever I can. Um, and um, I'm also... Uh, also leading a smart cities initiative called the Metro Lab Network, a, co a collaborative network of 40 leading cities and their university partners that are all about accelerating the research and development from the university side and then the deployment on the city side of smart city solutions to big city challenges. And I find all of that uh, exciting. I'm advising a few little tech companies. Let's hope they be, one of them becomes a big tech company for the sake of Mrs. O'Malley. And that's what I'm doing. In terms of ever running for office again, I might run for president again. I have not made that decision. It's way too early to make a decision like that. 
uh, but I just might be crazy enough to do that again. <laughs> and that's going to depend on a lot of things that, that you all are probably familiar with in the process of discernment. Yeah. Uh, and as the dust settles and the American people become clear about our present, about the choices we've made, and about the need to to uh, to make better choices, uh, I'll be I'll be making uh, going through that discernment process myself. And in the meantime, I'm playing I'm paying or rather I am staying uh, plenty busy. I'm sure. Well, if that uh, if that time comes, make sure you remember us here at Fly on the Wall. <laughs> Thank Heard you, Fly on the Wall. <laughs> so uh, something we do on this podcast that Aaron already teased a little bit of is our lightning round. Um, so we just have a couple of quick questions round. for you. Yeah, we have a cool sound. That you uh, will hear a cool sound effect. Yes. <laughs> once I add it in later. <laughs> it's pretty much it. There we go. There's <laughs> a little bit of raindrops. It's all. It's pretty cool. See, we don't even need a computer. <laughs> um, so our first question for you, and just you know, uh, rattle off just what you're thinking. Uh, if Democrats are going to take back the House in 2018, uh, give us three states that you think uh, we could see shifts in or we could see changes in. Hmm. Uh, three states. Lightning round? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Top of your head. Real Hachi. Quick. Hachi. Uh, <laughs> Florida. Pennsylvania. Michigan. Ooh, I like those. Okay. Those are big. Okay, question number two. What's one thing about America that you would change? Thinking big. <laughs> think big? Publicly financed election campaigns. Mm, I love that. Time for first place with rest- restoration of the fairness doctrine to our network news coverage. <laughs> <laughs> that works too. And then our last question for you. What's one thing you miss about being a fellow here at Geopolitics? One thing I miss. And you can't say me, even if, <laughs> even if that's the answer. Half price burger night at Tim's on Monday. Oh, that's that, a that was a classic. Yeah. <laughs> great. And uh, something else that we like to do, our final question is always, uh, we ask you to give some advice to some students here that are listening, since our audience is primarily Georgetown students. Uh, so if our listeners want to run for office someday, how would that process start here at Georgetown? Well, it, I think it starts with... Uh, I think it starts with acknowledging that you have a passion to do that and being honest within yourself that this is something that you're inclined to do. And if you have a, a passion for public service, you should follow it. There are probably things in your own upbringing, your own experience, your own life, and, and God's spark within you that put that yearning there. So I think that's the first step is to acknowledge that you want to do that and not to be ashamed of it. There's a lot of criminalization of public service, you know, the, the big Moscow line that other candidates also parroted, that all your politicians are corrupt. Uh, they're not. They're, uh, the only thing wrong with our politics is not enough good people choose to run and to make a difference. So to, to people that might be listening to this podcast and thinking that maybe they should run and maybe they should become candidates for office, I want to encourage them to go with that instinct. Uh, Probably, if you're if you're sensing that calling, God didn't put it there by accident, and you can make a big difference. When I first ran, I ran for state senate, uh, which was considered a pretty big leap for a 27-year-old not to run for House of Delegates. <laughs> and uh, and you know some of those wise minds were probably right. I lost that first race by 22 votes, but the very next year, there I see it opened on the Baltimore City Council, and I ran for city council. I served there uh, in both of those races. None of the powers that be could stop me from knocking on doors or calling my friends and asking them for $50 at a time, $100 at a time, maybe $200 at a time for the really wealthy friends. Big ass. That's, that's, yeah, that's pushing it right there. Big ass. <laughs> but I was able to raise the dollars necessary to run that, what for most of us, if we're not 
from wealthy families or or celebrity billionaires <laughs> is sort of the entry level of public service. And if you're truly doing it for the right reasons, uh, you, you have the uh, common sense and humility to understand that service is possible at every level. Like Dr. King said, we can all be great because all of us can serve. And there's service to be done at every level of our government. So anybody listening, I encourage you to run. And don't think that the only office in the land is United States Senate or House of Representatives or President. There's other places you can make a difference. I think that's a good answer while everyone's busy writing their final papers. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing to do, you know, if you need a little stress break. Think back and, and pretend you're running for president. Yeah. Right? Just acknowledge well, that. One of the actions is to get through college. Right? <laughs> that's I assume that's step one, right? All right. <laughs> get that Governor degree. Governor Martin thank you so much for coming. Thanks for thank coming you. on the pod. It's been fun. Well, that's our show. Thanks so much to Governor Martin O'Malley for being on the podcast. I'm so glad we finally made it work. Uh, like I said, he's one of my political heroes, so it's amazing to listen to him and actually talk with him about, uh, you know, where he sees the future of the party and the country going. Yeah, and if you guys are interested as well, the governor is a big guitarist, mm. and you can find some video evidence of him playing guitar and singing songs. Uh, oftentimes Irish songs uh, to people at his events. So definitely check that out. It's really fun. Sometimes he plays a little bit of Taylor Swift. Cause baby, now we got bad blood. You know it used to be bad blood. So take a look at what you've done. That maybe now we got bad blood. Hey! Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, definitely check us out on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, um, whatever, at Fly on the Wall Pod. Um, we are going to have an awesome slate of guests in the next couple of weeks before we go through summer. Um, keep an eye out on what we're going to be doing this summer. Uh, it's definitely going to be fascinating. Uh, we're still trying to figure it out, uh, figure out what you guys want to listen to. Yeah, we know for sure that uh, we're going to be following up with the Hoyas in UK trip mm -hmm. as they go up for the snap election. So keep your eyes peeled for that. We also have a couple of other interesting ideas in the works. Uh, you'll definitely be able to hear from us. Probably not as frequently, probably not twice a week. Sorry. <laughs> I know that must be tragic for you, but we'll be in D.C., we'll be in town, and we are committed to bringing you the best political content in the district, so stay tuned. Have a great summer. Hags. You just reminded me of, like, every yearbook thing. Right? Or have a terrific summer, like, hats. I never got hats. You never I got always, hats? I always got hags, and if I got hags, I just knew I wasn't supposed to be friends with them. Yeah, you, like... We were we were never friends unless it was like an ironic hags, which was like like a like an ironic hags from your best friend who like couldn't actually write anything in it because it was like too much. I've never had that. Maybe yeah. I just didn't have as many friends in elementary school.